0: Hi, this is Jason Graves, host of The Blazing Gray Show. I'd like to introduce you to a product that I firmly believe should be used in every home in America. It's called SafeEyes. SafeEyes is the only software you'll need to protect you and your family from inappropriate content on the Internet. Over the last couple of years, I've tried several products and have never found anything as fast, effective, and affordable as SafeEyes. I now only use SafeEyes, and I recommend it to everybody I talk to all over the country. You don't have to take my word for it, though. SafeEyes was Recently ranked as the number one internet filtering software by the most well-known product testing company in America, alongside ten other products. No credit cards are necessary to start your 15-day risk-free trial today. Or to learn more about Safe Eyes, visit their website at safeeyes.com or call toll-free 877-944-8080. You'll be glad you gave Safe Eyes a try. I know I sure am. That's safeeyes.com. 877-944-8080.
1: Counselors, business owners, nonprofits, and trainers—you need unlimited flat-rate conference calling? Then call our good friend Tom Parker at Affordable Conferencing, where his teleconferencing service allows you to conduct unlimited calls for one flat monthly fee. That means no more per-minute, per-person charges. Go to affordableconferencing.com or simply call toll-free 888-968-6186. He saved Jason and Rob thousands that's tom parker at affordable conferencing 888-968-6186 they're proud to bring you today's broadcast now it's time for this week's edition of the blazing grace show with your host rob mcintyre jason graves and mike Janung. it's sponsored by affordableconferencing.com and safe eyes thanks for tuning in to the blazing grace show where we cover blazing issues with grace filled
0: answers now here's your hosts rob jason and mike Welcome back to the Blazing Grays show. This is Jason Graves along with Rob McIntyre and Mike Janang. Hello boys. Howdy. Hey. Hey. What's what, so funny? I don't know. I'm just energized today. I think it may maybe the coffee. I, nah. For me it's cuz of the Lakers. <laughs> oh god. <gosh>. What <laughs> happened a few
1: days ago? Oh my gosh. How about the Broncos. I don't, don't
0: want to talk about what happened a few days ago. <laughs> okay. Let's just, you know, let's just get it out. The Lakers beat the Sonics. Okay. It's simple. It happens, but life goes on. And in the end, green prevails. Did you watch the Seahawks game, by the no, way? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I did. Okay. But I wasn't going for the Giants. Really. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, we're excited to be back in the studio. And uh, on behalf of uh, Ted Griffin, our producer, thanking you for tuning in to Blazing Gray Show, where we're visiting today with Dan and John, who are registered sex offenders. And we're going to be talking about just the truth about sexual offenses and the people who are... Um, living in that category, so to speak. And uh, in studio today, we have Dan. Hello, Dan. Hi. How are you doing? Good. Good to have you. Thanks for being with us. And calling in from, I think, the great state of Arkansas is John. Say hello to the fans, John. Good morning. Good morning. Good to have you. Well, we're excited to have you guys and wanted to just give a chance for you to, first off, just kind of share your stories about who you are and, and uh, obviously you're, you're men of faith and you're here to really kind of set the record straight on some things, but also to help educate the public about who sex offenders are and what are some of the myths. We want to debunk those today. But, uh, Dan, maybe you could start us off.
1: Sure, I can do that. Uh, I've just recently been released from a work release program where I was sentenced to six years for sexual assault on a child by a person in position of trust. And uh, essentially... What took place was I was uh, living with a woman i wasn 't married at the time to her, and I took it upon myself to uh, sexually assault her daughter mm-hmm. so. and wow. she uh basically what she had done after over about a period of a year this was going on i uh well she actually spoke to a social worker, and that 's how I was discovered mm. so And then what happened from there? Uh, Basically, I spent some... I was arrested, of course. I didn't spend very much time in jail. Uh, I was able to bail out, or bond out, rather. And then, uh, basically, I just, for about nine months, I went into a therapy program voluntarily. And my original goal for that purpose was to receive a lesser sentence, hopefully. Uh, But... That didn't quite work the way I wanted, and I was sent to a, a correctional program. And it, I was fortunate enough, though, that it was work-released. Uh, however, it wasn't in the area that I was living in at the time, and I pretty much had to give up everything I had. Uh, I had a, I had some property. I had a condominium that I owned, which fortunately I was able to sell uh, other worldly possessions, which I had lost because I had to sell in order to cover my my um, bail bond and then also my attorney and things like that. I had a job where at the time I was making 60000 a year annually, which is pretty good. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's definitely middle class. And uh, I was separated. You know, more importantly, it was the emotional aspect, the separation of my family uh, for a long period of time, I had no contact with any of my family. I have uh, a son and a daughter, and I had no contact with them. My mother, I wasn't able to have contact with her uh, for quite a while. But it, but it was a slow process, and it's come back around, and I've been working towards, you know. I'm, well, at this point now, I have contact with my family again, and I see them on a regular basis. And they are aware of my situation, my, my offense, and it's things have uh, improved for me through the grace of God and through the help that I've gotten by the different uh, therapies that I've gone to and through the different uh, programs that I've attended. Mm-hmm. So. Did you get started with
2: pornography? I mean, nobody just decides to act out with, with a girl or a minor. How,
1: how did you get involved with lust from the beginning? Well, it started at a pretty young age for me. Uh, You know, at 11 years old, I was introduced to to pornography. Uh, As time goes on, I managed to distort in my mind what sex really meant to me. And I pretty much associated sex with power, and especially given the fact that I had used pornography a lot, and as the older I got, the more involved with pornography I became. Uh, It was just just more of a status symbol to me. Uh, the pornography, you know, you, as you go on, it's like with any addiction, you start off really simple, and that seems to be enough for you, but as time moves on and things move ahead, you need more, you need more, you need more, and it, it requires more for you to satisfy your needs, satisfy your lust, and you start experimenting with different aspects of pornography, And, yeah, I'd have to say pornography was a very big, you know, motivator in my life. You know, granted, it's some sort of a fantasy that I was running right at the time. But how long does it take for anybody? But especially for me, how long did it take before I wanted to start acting out on some of those fantasies? Mm -hmm. And that's basically what it amounted to. I was, when I offended, I was, oh, I was... Forty-four years old, mm-hmm. and I'd been involved with pornography to various levels uh, since I was eleven years old. So,
2: now I don't know if you can comment on this because uh, I I didn't ask it off the air, but uh, obviously this is your first and only victim.
1: No, that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. Uh, I had other people that I victimized. They were adults, but the. Uh, I was in a position of uh of authority over them or I was in a position of uh trust mm-hmm. with them and I took advantage of the situations there mm-hmm. and uh, I, some of, and my victims range they were uh, male and female mm-hmm. so
2: now, the the consequence obviously is is one of the things that uh, I I don't think anybody else in this room uh, maybe John can identify with but Talk to us a little bit about the just the weight and the the heaviness of the consequence of once everything started to hit.
1: Well, do you mean after I was convicted? Yeah, after you're caught. Well, okay.
2: yeah, caught and convicted.
1: Well, it weighed on me the entire time, even when I was when I was offending. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would to use my primary victim that I was charged with for an example. Um, every time I would offend on her. I would turn around and say, oh, I'll never do that again, you know. I would do other things to try to compensate. I would try to, you know, make myself feel better, you know, thinking that it was that like I was trying to make her feel belt better or make up, to, uh, make up to her mother, you know, without her mother even being aware of it. Right. And so, but, so there was a burden on me even at that time. Hmm. Uh, afterwards, actually, I almost felt a certain amount of relief. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fact that uh, I was caught, I almost felt like, okay, maybe I can get a grip on this now. Maybe I can get some sort of uh, feeling of relief from it all, Mm -hmm. which was a distortion in itself because that's not the way it works. That's not the way the various programs that are out there work. Mm -hmm. Uh, The burden was primarily is after being caught was, you know, the shame that was involved with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also the fact that I was letting my family down and I was concerned as as far as being able to be there for my family, especially for my mother. Yeah. Uh, while I was serving, my mother went from living in her own home on her own to an assisted care facility. Wow. Uh, she's fairly elderly, but she, you know... I wasn't able to help in that. My brother, thank God, was able was there for her and was able to get her tra- into her transition there really well. Uh but I really felt a lot of burden in that aspect of it all. Yeah. Uh I feel uh even today I feel burdened as far as those people that I victimized directly. Mm-hmm. Uh the the young girl that I victimized and her mother. You know, I I often ask myself, how would they feel knowing that I am now relatively free? And I am. I mean, I have no I have no tail at the end of my sentence other than I do have to register every three months uh, within the area that I'm living.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Wow. So there's been a, a ton of costs for you and the people involved. And I just want to just thank you for being so real and open with your story, but then also taking responsibility and – saying, well, even though some of these things I did weren't crimes in the sense that, you know, in the legal sense, they they were offenses. There were victims there. I want to come back to you and ask you some more questions in a bit, but let's go out to John. And, John, if you could just kind of tell us your unique story.
3: I'd be glad to. Um, Mine's a little different than Dan's in the Mm -hmm. fact that um, I had, uh, in October of 99, I was given a phone call by my ex-wife And uh, I remember that day very vividly because uh, when she called and told me that they had discovered my stepdaughter's journal, and uh, what had happened is my stepdaughter had not showed up from uh, from school to her sister's house, had gone to a friend's house instead to stay the night, and she was reported as missing. And the police went in to try to find any kind of clues where she might be, Uh, reading through a journal, had discovered some things that she'd written down about me. I molested my two stepdaughters uh, over a course of about 11 years, mm-hmm. and uh, the, uh, the thing that happened to me was it, was, it was a very difficult time for me because the fact that, that I was a police officer at the time also. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a police officer, I had put in 14 years at that point, living a, a double life, and uh, the uh, you know, you asked Dan a question a while ago about uh, if, what his feelings were when he got caught. And I can remember that I had a feeling of relief, uh, actually, that felt like the world, the weight of the world had been taken off my shoulders because I, too, uh, when I would victimize uh, my daughters, I would promise myself that I would not do this again. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I'd catch myself back into the same act. So this was uh, an opportunity to to face what I'd been doing, and and I knew that I could not uh, stop this on my own. Mm. My entire from my from my earliest memories, my entire life has been about sex. Mm. Uh, at the age of five, my uh, uh, male relative on my dad's side uh, attempted to molest me. Uh scared me. Uh, at the age of six. I had a uh, a friend of my brother's sodomized me for a little over a year, and then at the age of eleven, a female relative on my mother's side did molest me hmm. uh, so I had kind of taken without realizing it uh, through the years that you know to me life was or sex was was acceptance sex was love um, you name it I mean, yeah I just I came from a very dysfunctional family. Uh, I don't know. The uh the impact, the, the, the biggest if I could say what uh I'm trying to get my thoughts together here. Hindsight being twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's all about the moment. It's it's about it's all it's very selfish it's all about me it's not looking at anybody and how it's affecting them uh, to me it was uh, it was just all about me yeah and uh, looking back over it i can see all the damage that i did and uh, the psychological harm you know it's, it's it's hard to to really know what type of harm you did to a person psychologically mhm uh, their lives will play that out For me, it's uh, it's been a blessing that uh, I got caught. I originally uh, was sentenced through uh, the Department of Corrections in Colorado. Mm
1: -hmm. I had
3: a five-year sentence, and then uh, it was followed up with a five-year parole. Uh, 439 days into that sentence, I was uh, fortunate to uh, have a reconsideration hearing, and uh, in that reconsideration hearing, I was resentenced to uh, the same place that Dan Time at the work release program,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and uh, I was given 439 days credit, and uh, I did th- right at three and a half years in this work release program. Mm-hmm. And, uh, tell you it was a very valuable program. Uh, I learned a lot about myself in that program.
2: Wow. With you being a police officer and then going into prison, what was that all about, or what did you go through with that?
3: That was a very scary thing for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, matter of fact, when I was uh, first sentenced uh, when the actual sentence came down I had pretty much decided that life was over mm. um, I would die in prison right uh, I was able I was fortunate enough to, to be able to bond out I came back home uh for a period of 8 months and in that time I was also the uh, caregiver for my mother she lived with me and she was uh, uh, on oxygen and uh, during that time she passed away mm which turned out to be a blessing because I don't think I could have taken it if she had died while I was in prison. But to answer your question, um, I did actually have an individual come to me. Uh, Most of my law enforcement experience has been in Arkansas, and I did a a short time of it in Colorado. Well, as it would turn out, an individual came up to me in prison and said, hey, I remember you. Uh, You used to be a cop. Hmm. And... uh, Chest just about pounded out of my, or my heart just about pounded out of my chest. hmm uh but uh, as far as what that was like to me, I, I lived in fear. Um, I actually had to go into protective custody for a little while. Yeah. And, and uh, I tell you, it was. Uh, it turned into a very focused time with the Lord for me because I had no place else to turn. Yeah. I was the lowest of the lowest. And, right. Uh,
2: Yeah. Gosh, John, uh, uh, being an ex-cop myself, I, I, I can only imagine what that fear would be like. I, I've i heard the stories, and uh, wow. Uh, I, I have a question for you, Dan. Uh, John had mentioned a little bit about uh, his trauma in his background, his sexual trauma. I was wondering, did you experience anything like that in, in your, your upbringing?
1: Uh, yeah, I was assaulted when I was nine years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was assaulted by another male, uh, but it I had my biggest problem was my introduction to promiscuousness at a very young age. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it tended to really to distort my view on what sex is. Mm-hmm.
2: So, so, so I, I'd just like to recap this for our listeners. I mean, w- right now in in the United States, we're seeing uh, one out of six men are are sexually abused in the United States. It's probably even less than that on top of that the the, uh, the you know just the, the pornography and the, the the essentialism that's coming across tv and all that and the addiction that is so prevalent in our society and you know both of you guys are are talking about some of these things that have added up to to you know what has led you to this point in your life and and i mean to me i'm seeing red flags i'm saying you know we need we need guys to wake up and and, and see that just a little bit of lust, or a little bit of pornography, or a little bit of this kind of behavior and that.